My name's Justin DeClure. I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And you are listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today, we're going to get stylish, because we're talking about the cinema of the top vulgar tourist, Tony Scott. <laughs> That's right. We are talking about a director who has several different reputations. To mainstream critics, Tony Scott was Ridley Scott's trashy, hacky little brother. Yeah, the guy who directed stuff like Top Gun and made movies for the highest dollar, all style, no substance. And to lay filmgoers, maybe they know his name, maybe they don't, but they certainly know his work. True Romance, Crimson Tide, Days of Thunder, Beverly Hills Cop 2. That's just the tip of the iceberg. And Tony Scott has also become one of those figures that has been kind of reappraised by, how can we call it, millennium film critics? Yeah, I think that's right. Kind of like the movie generation. <laughs> the movie generation. Have you ever used movie, Will? Uh, yes, I have used movie, believe it or not. Uh, I have a subscription. Really? I am also a subscriber. Please sponsor us, movie. Yeah, it's a beautiful service. To a younger and I think smaller contingent of film critics, Tony Scott is considered a great artist. I have read a lot of critical writing comparing him as a visual stylist to everyone from painters like Jackson Pollock and uh, J.M.W. Turner to experimental filmmakers like Stan Brakhage. And that may sound peculiar if all you've seen of Tony Scott are the best known ones from the 80s and 90s, like Top Gun. But in the last decade of Tony Scott's career, he had a very radical shift in his visual and editing style. How would you describe that shift? I would describe it as very scattershot. Throw everything up against the wall at a hyperactive speed see what sticks hope some beautiful images come out of it i think we're going to be talking about tony scott primarily as a visual filmmaker here although i'm sure we could talk about some of the thematics if we wanted to well i called him a vulgar auteurist at the beginning of the episode and i think that oftentimes that term is thrown around for a kind of cohesion of a filmmaker on a visual level that that's what people are attracted to not necessarily thematic which is how the people who kind of coined the term auteur for a film meant it. Well, yeah, I mean, vulgar auteurism, for bringing up this term, like... We're digging in, Will, we gotta. Any regular person listening to this is going to be very confused by this, but the quick 30-second summary is, you got this thing called the auteur theory. Everyone knows what that is. Around 2010 or 2011, it became sort of popular online for a little while, this umbrella term called vulgar auteurism that was about reclaiming certain like 90s and 2000s directors who had been considered sort of trashy people like Michael Mann people like Michael Bay uh, taking them seriously as artists and like vulgar auteurism really is no different than actual auteurism Truffaut came back from the grave and was like what the hell are you guys doing <laughs> like this is what we meant when we were reclaiming people like Hitchcock and Howard Hawks it's just auteurism yeah so I think a lot of the people who trafficked in vulgar auteurism understood that some people didn't understand that and tried to tried to turn it into a movement which it clearly was not well it's like a hot take that you can have right like oh this filmmaker i really like him god i don't know i don't want to say a name because i don't want anybody to be insulted but clearly it was an attempt to do for a new generation of filmmakers what the kaye critics had been doing to for people like yeah hitchcock or howard hawks or edgar g ulmer or people not taken all that seriously by mainstream critics in the 40s and 50s and me and will went in excited to kind of discover tony scott in this way Man, I'm fooled every time by this. <laughs> I'm glad that we did this episode because I have not understood 
Tony Scott as an artist, basically. I saw Unstoppable. I saw The Taking of Pelham 123, his remake. I had seen this style that he had cultivated late in his career uh, with all the frantic editing and the weird, smeary, grainy, amped up colors, you know, visual chaos. Hand crank cameras that are flashing on screen all the time. And yeah, I should probably just tell people like, what the evolution in Tony Scott's visual style is. If you look at his early films like The Hunger or The Last Boy Scout, you will see that he had a very lush and handsome visual style. Beautiful use of shadow, beautiful compositions, uh, you know, breathtaking at times. Curtains in the wind, like The Hunger is filled with those. Pigeons flapping through the air. And then you look at the later movies like Man on Fire and Domino and Unstoppable and the cinematography as we said it's all over the place and clearly this was done on purpose like michael mann one of his filmmaking contemporaries he was a master of making movies the normal way visually and he eventually got to the point where he decided i don't want to do the normal way to tell a story i'm gonna look for new visual textures and i gotta say i still don't like tony scott's late period style i've read the cases for it We'll get into that. I remain unconvinced. But I mean, what you got to say for him is uh, he was really swinging for it. He had a style and he had a reason for it. And he was taking chances as well. Like, you know, when people kind of box Tony Scott in as the hack that he's just going out there making big blockbuster entertainment like Enemy of the State, they're kind of not considering that. He is considering what he's making. (laughs) Like, I watch a bunch of interviews with Tony Scott and like he kind of thinks through almost every creative decision that he makes. I was shocked to learn that I own almost all of Tony Scott's films on Blu-ray and DVD because he is a guy that like likes to break down all the decisions. He does commentaries on all of his films. Uh, on the Domino DVD, there's an amazing commentary track that I've never heard anyone else include this, which is story conferences between Tony Scott and Richard Kelly, the screenwriter, that is edited over the movie. So whatever scene you're seeing, you're hearing a clip from a story conference where they're arguing about decisions that should be made on a story level. Like he was very open about that stuff and his process. And I found that very refreshing for somebody who was making such big budget. It's worth pointing out, I mean, we're talking about the younger critics and the case they've made for him. When movies like Domino and Man on Fire were coming out in the 2000s, these movies were very badly received by older establishment critics. You got that Dave Kerr uh, quote ready to go? I don't have it ready to go, but I do know that Dave Kerr was like... I know that some of these younger people, I'm just paraphrasing, some of the younger critics have have taken Tony Scott as their favorite director, but like all I see are just a bunch of quick cuts and, and idiocy that mean nothing. I don't get it. And like that's basically the consensus, you know, both among mainstream highbrow and middlebrow and lowbrow critics, you know. I think that we should jump like all the way back in time to like describe how Tony Scott got to the place that he was because, you know, it's rare that like two brothers would become filmmakers at such a high level as Tony Scott and Ridley Scott. And Tony Scott is very honest that Ridley wanted to be the filmmaker. He was happy to be a painter. He went to school for five years and studied painting and it wasn't until Ridley Scott made his thesis film, Boy on a 
bike with stars Tony that Tony went, oh, man, this it could be interesting. And he really got involved in that. And, you know, it's forgotten kind of that one of Tony's first long form things was made in 1970, much before he made The Hunger in 1983. And it's very different from what he had done before. And that film, Loving Memory, seems to like show a completely different kind of filmmaker, one that wanted to, you know, kind of be weird. The camera moves are very calculated. It is all about the visual textures. I mean, Tony said that for decades, he was just focused on the visuals and didn't really interact with the actors, but it's much more kind of painterly in a less showy, in-your-face and modern way. There's an interview where Tony Scott says that one of his favorite directors is Miklos Jancho, who is the director of The Red and the White, who's most famous for having the longest takes in cinema, which is not something that you would associate with Tony Scott. But I think that what changed things is that Tony Scott directed commercials for 15 years, and the expectations of what a commercial is supposed to do are completely different from whatever your taste may be when you start making them. And when you do something for 15 years, your kind of style is going to be chipped away until it's one specific thing. And I think that kind of happened to Tony Scott. I think it's fair to say that, yeah, like some of the early Tony Scott movies from the first half of his career have a bit of a TV commercial aesthetic. I'm saying that like as fondly as possible, like very striking poses, very beautifully lit. It's very fast paced, not as fast paced as it would become, but like you could take any 30 seconds out of a movie like The Last Boy Scout and it sort of becomes its own TV spot. I'm going to make a big jump here and say that like The Hunger seems to be like the movies that Tony Scott wanted to make, which is very beautiful. You know, it looks kind of like a commercial, but it's also slower and it's also very weird. Like the film is doing stuff with kind of like chronology and the images that it's flashing on screen, sometimes reminding me of like Ken Russell-ish stuff. And that film... You know, it was lambasted by critics. They hated it. And Tony Scott was like, I'm never going to direct another movie again until Jerry Bruckheimer and his good pal Don Simpson asked Tony Scott to direct Top Gun. And I think that, you know, that was not a project that Tony Scott wanted to make. And he thought that the end result was not good. But I think that Top Gun locked Tony into the technological action movie guy and it is a box that he never escaped for the rest of his career let's talk about a movie that we both watched this week a very typical film from tony scott's filmography called the last boy scout starring bruce willis and damon wayans this movie i think has always had a bit of a bad reputation at least among mainstream critics it underperformed at the box office when it came out i thought it was terrific oh what a delight i mean you got tony scott's beautiful style at its peak You got an amazing script by Shane Black filled with quips and, you know, the private eye stuff that he would make his bread and butter. You have Damon Wayans having a blast and you got, wait, what's this? A committed Bruce Willis. It's like seeing a unicorn. It had been so long since I enjoyed watching Bruce Willis in a movie that I kind of forgot what it felt like. (laughs) And it was just great to see him in this movie because, you know, he's much like late period Bruce Willis. He's very low key, very minimalist as a screen presence. And yet, and yet the spark is there and he's delivering those Shane Black quips and every one of them lands. Yeah, he's got charisma. He doesn't feel tired. Even though his character is tired, there's a big difference between the actor being like, I'd rather be anywhere else and just selling a line with exhaustion that just makes him more charming. So yeah, The Last Boy Scout, you know, your, your quintessential 
late 80s, early 90s buddy action movie in the, I don't think it was actually made by Bruckheimer and Simpson, but... No, that's a Joel Silver joint. It's got Bruckheimer and Simpson vibes to it. Bruce Willis is a detective, and Damon Wayans is a disgraced football star who's been taken off the field for gambling. He's also struggling with substance abuse issues. It's a Shane Black story. It's got lots of twists and turns, but basically there's a criminal conspiracy involving uh, the owner of a football team who um, and by the way the football industry is depicted as very evil and corrupt in this film which it is like it is in real life yes (laughs) he's going to knock off a senator who is potentially going to vote against a piece of legislation and they're going to frame it on Bruce Willis who was once the senator's bodyguard and is a well-known hater of that senator man it breaks my heart that Shane Black doesn't get to write more scripts anymore (laughs) like they're like you're too difficult get out of here man I was listening to the snappy repartee between Damon Wayans and Bruce Willis in this movie and I was chuckling you know I was I was laughing out loud it's fun the action in this movie is great and I just could not believe how good this movie looked like every second of this movie some of the scenes that are set at night when they're just out in like alleys and it's got you know smoke and blue filters and the light reflecting off the rain soaked ground uh you know the scenes in the strip club with the neon and this was just disposable entertainment at the time of its release will nobody noticed how good this movie looked um it looks like it looks like king of new york or a movie like that and i think that it should be noted like what do you think are the differences between ridley scott and tony scott because both of them are often you know categorized for their kind of visual opulence and like what kind of separates both well i think despite the misgivings i've expressed about tony scott i think uh, put head to head i will definitely take him over ridley i agree ridley has had a few higher highs like the duelists and perhaps blade runner but i mean come on I, th- like you look at ridley scott's oeuvre and there are, there's just so much leaden filmmaking in there are you trying to say that russell crowe um going back to the winery a good year is a leaden film there's definitely much more imagination in tony scott's filmography uh, tony scott's filmography is a lot less pretentious that's true yeah even though that i think that tony scott is more experimental because he is often having to deal with this kind of cookie cutter material that's being given to him and you know his reaction to it especially later in his career seems to be a conscious effort of like okay how can I elevate it how can I take the style that people know and push it in a radically different direction whether that works or not I mean I'll take the crazy big swings of a movie like Domino over Prometheus. Oh, God. (laughs) The late period Ridley Scott movies have this air of someone who, yeah, is a master in a certain way. Like, he knows how to make a movie, and therefore he doesn't have to work at it at all. Oh, I always think of late period Ridley Scott in the Prometheus documentary. He walks into, like, the place where they're, like, designing storyboards and production art, and he just has a giant cigar and a giant glass (laughs) of wine as he, like, walks around, being like, yeah, yeah, this looks good. All right, guys, see you later. Tony Scott, you feel him sweating on screen when he's making this stuff. Even though I feel like, you know, after Last Boy Scout, he makes True Romance, he makes Crimson Tide. Remember Crimson Tide? The Simpsons thought it would be popular. They based a whole episode around it. Featuring uncredited ghost doctoring on the script by Quentin Tarantino, believe it or not. You would never know, considering that two soldiers at one point uh, (laughs) argue about which is the better silver surfer. But I think the last movie where it's the classic Tony Scott style is Spygate 
game from 2001, which you watched this week. I did. I think that he is transitioning into what will become Man on Fire, but he's still kind of like, you know, uh, playing around. I mean, Enemy of the State is pretty radical in its quick cuts and its in-your-faceness in a way that you don't really get from something like True Romance and The Last Boy Scout, which is more kind of like, you know opulent in its visuals enemy of the state will always stay with me because i once had an allergic reaction that was so severe i had to go to the hospital and i remember them giving me medication and falling asleep watching enemy of the state and going will this be the last movie that i see <laughs> well you would have gone out on a high note <laughs> yeah oh man big willy having fun gene hackman playing the same character from the conversation <laughs> yeah maybe it's a sequel were you a big fan of man on fire when it came out it, especially its radical style i've actually never seen man on fire i was i was hope i was hoping to get to it this week but unfortunately i didn't so i'm getting the uh hints here that you've almost not avoided tony scott but never made an effort to go towards his movies and watch them because you had never seen domino either absolutely i saw the taking of pelham one two three in a theater yeah but that's because you're a john travolta head <laughs> and you need to see all of his film theatrically <laughs> yeah that's right but yeah the experience of seeing the taking of pelham one two three his remake of that was so kind of repulsive to me that I didn't want to explore Tony Scott at all after that. But then I kept hearing all of this hype about his visual style. And like, I remember when Domino came out, I remember seeing that trailer over and over and over again. My name is Domino Harvey, Domino Harvey, Domino Harvey. And I'm a bounty hunter. I'm a bounty hunter. I'm a bounty hunter. And I remember there was one weekend when I was going to go see Domino. And then I thought, you know what? I'm not going to like that. I can tell by the trailer that I'm not going to like that movie. You weren't like, ah, Stan Brakhage lives again. Commercial cinema. Yeah, I didn't know who Stan Brakhage was at the time. <laughs> and you weren't a Richard Kelly head. You weren't like, can't wait to see what Richard Kelly does next. Director of Donnie Darko. Well, anyway, I did watch Domino this week. And um, just by way of getting into some of the visual stuff that Tony Scott does in it, I would like to read a couple of sentences from an article by Ignati Vishnevetsky on Mubi. I actually think the article is like pretty good. It's got, it has some interesting things that it says in it, although there's something in it that I disagree with. The article is called Smearing the Senses, Tony Scott Action Painter. And there have been a number of articles that use language like that, action painter, to describe what he was doing. What does that mean? Well, Ignati Vishnevetsky writes... Scott was not a photographic filmmaker. His work does not concern itself with physical realities, whether actual or constructed, for the benefit of the camera. He was a painterly filmmaker, at first an expressionist, prone to outsized lighting schemes and camera movements with pop art tendencies, and later an impressionist, whose style was more abstract than figurative. So I, I think that goes a long way to explaining what the fans of Tony Scott like about that late period style. I would like to dispute it somewhat because I think a problem that I have is that the films actually are figurative, okay? They're not just abstract. They are figurative in the sense that they tell conventional stories. Yeah, they do. And the problem is because they're telling conventional stories, there's supposed to be conventional beats that are happening within the context of the story. And the style and the storytelling gets in the way of them, creating unsatisfying experiences. Late period Tony Scott is often compared to Jackson Pollock you know, action painting on the screen. But the thing is, 
a Jackson Pollock painting is genuinely non-representative, whereas Tony Scott's movies are like if Jackson Pollock painted over a photograph. If Jackson Pollock made like 30 paintings and then he picked his favorite parts of each of them. So like the immediate action exists, but then it gets cataloged and kind of, you know, this is what I want to give to an audience, which doesn't really work. Because I think like Tony Scott... Near the end of his career, he became famous for, like, there's seven cameras shooting at once. One of them's hand-cranked. One of them's shooting at six frames per second. Another one's shooting only in slow motion. And it's like, okay, that could be an immediate picture that you get at the end of the day, but you're not editing it live. You're putting it together to create a final motion picture. And I think all of those things are slamming up against each other, and they just leave the viewer exhausted and not in a good way. Well, they leave me exhausted. Oh, man, Domino. That's a long two hours. Yeah, I didn't like Domino. I know there were lots of people who love this style, and I think that's great, and I wish I was one of them. The best that I can say about the visual style of Domino is that there's no other movie that looks like it. So there's that. There's there's one movie that looks like this. Every time I watch Domino, I'm like, oh yeah, these first 30 minutes, this is fun. And then there's another 90 minutes of exactly the same thing. At one point, they get on drugs, and it's like, but the style's not changing, because we've been on drugs this entire time. Yeah, that's the thing. It's like, it's a very busy and frenetic story with lots of moving parts uh, written by Richard Kelly as you alluded to earlier like it's a very convoluted and hard to follow story and the movie benefits or theoretically benefits from a very uh, frantic and chaotic visual style because that would be propulsive that would be energetic but if the regular expository dialogue scenes are edited and filmed in the same way as the action scenes the movie doesn't get its tender hooks in me what's odd about Domino is that there's never a... I don't think that when they were making it, they expected it to be this wild because otherwise you would want a kind of entryway into why Domino is viewing all of this in this style, right? Like if this was like her mental state and you felt this is how she viewed the world, then maybe there would be, you know, you would accept what's happening in a different way. But Played by Kira Knightley, the whole film is about, like, you know, the daughter of an actor becomes a bounty hunter because she's bored with life. And she's cool. She's always collected. She is a complete cipher. And then around her is this wild and insane style that doesn't really work. It makes no sense with the story that we're seeing. Yeah, and I do like Kira Knightley in the movie. I liked her performance quite a bit. And that's kind of all I can say about the plot because... Oh, man, is it convoluted. <laughs> Yeah, and I didn't... But Will, it represents, you know, the modern day of when Domino came out, 2005, disposable culture, reality television, the stars of 90210 playing themselves. Another problem that I have just on a basic personal level is... I don't I don't like visually some of the things that Tony Scott likes. I don't love like orange skies. I don't love, you know, dark green and brown color schemes. If we're talking about just vibes, there are a lot of people who appreciate these movies just on the level of they emanate a vibe that they get on the wavelength of. Yeah, give me the vibe of the last half of fear and loathing when they get on the bad <laughs> drugs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. It, it, it's not a vibe for me, but I did like I did basically enjoy Deja Vu from 2006. You know, Man on Fire was kind of a big surprise hit and kind of revitalized Tony Scott as a, you know, filmmaker who has a very specific style. Domino was his, you know, all right, I'm going all in. Deja Vu is him going, listen, I can play by the rules again. <laughs> but he still kind of does it on his own terms because it's got a crazy story where there's been a terrorist attack on a ferry and Denzel is a federal agent who ends up getting brought into this secret lab where 
the various bureaucrats there have this kooky contraption called a time window. Yeah, it's basically like a time window where they can see a specific uh, amount of time in the past and they can like move a camera around in it. Yeah, you can basically see four days ago because that's how long it takes, but you can only see it in linear time. You can't fast forward, you can't rewind, but you can explore anywhere in this linear time. Within, um, you know, a specific distance from where they're watching this stuff. So anyway, like many people have compared this film to Vertigo because... It's about viewing and looking at someone who doesn't know they're being viewed. Lots of stuff in here for your academic essay. Oh, about... yeah. Like, this is something like you're licking your lips when you're like, oh, it's about the art of cinema because they're creating a movie as they're watching the past. Yeah, that's right. And it's like, what if what, what if cinema can triumph over the past? What if the images that, that we create, for, what if in the editing suite? Yeah, what if you can go into the screen and meet Jeff Bridges in the Purple Rose of Cairo? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, uh, you know, it's it's a real histoire du cinema. And a lot of people have also pointed out that it looks almost as if Denzel is watching a Tony Scott movie within the Tony Scott movie. Every time they move the camera, it makes a whoosh sound effect. So, you know, I wonder if they program that in themselves or it's just a side effect. I think that as a movie, I find it pretty compelling. It's fun. It does a lot of crazy stuff with the time travel gimmick without going completely off the rails. But... I think that like Tony Scott has admitted that he kind of lost track of the film as it went along. And that while I think it actually worked very, very well, when I sat down and thought about it, you know, Hitchcock style, going to that fridge, I was like, wait a minute, this thing makes no sense. On some level, it doesn't make a lot of sense. But also, like, I thought it was like, this is basically the movie that I would have liked Tenet to be. Oh, yeah, I agree. And like, not stupid either. I think it actually has things to say. I think what, what I was saying that you could write your academic essay about it, but you actually could. There's a lot in here that you could say. You know, we're saying it sarcastically, but only because it's right out there for you to take. Like, it's not just about cinema, but it's also about like surveillance culture and post 9-11 America. Like, there's there's a lot of stuff that you could find in here if you wanted to. I mean, that was also what Tony Scott was dealing with in Enemy of the State, which came out in 1998, which feels like a post 9-11 movie, even though, you know, it didn't, it came before 9-11. I'll just say that I have some of the same reservations in this movie about Tony Scott's visual style that I always have. Um, I don't, I don't like all the swooshing camera. I don't like the quick cuts. Sorry. It's not for me. I don't think it's as kind of in your face as something like Domino. You know, you could give it the parent test. If I showed Domino to uh, my dad, he'd be like, what the hell is this? If I showed him Deja Vu, he'd be like, "Mm, that was a good movie. Tony Scott's swan song was the critically acclaimed Unstoppable in 2010. A rare critical success for Tony Scott. You know, pretty fun, solid uh, uh, two guys trying to stop a runaway train movie. Sadly, Tony Scott's life ended tragically when he took his own life in 2012. 12. And, uh, you know, his reputation in, in many circles has only risen since then. I'm glad that we did this week because I wanted to spend a little bit more time with Tony Scott and understand him a little more and maybe even appreciate him more. And I think I do. Yeah, but you've watched enough Tony Scott movies for a while. Oh, yeah. Right? I mean, but I, I am going to I am going to watch Man on Fire eventually because I think maybe I'll like the style a bit better if Denzel is in it. I think one of the things I really wish we could have gotten from Tony Scott for a long time, he was talking about remaking The Warriors, but set in L.A. and with real life gangs post Domino. Oh, wow. That actually sounds well, I probably wouldn't have liked it, but it sounds in theory pretty good. Now, Not at the time, but I feel like his style would have been perfect for that. And, you know, it would have been so radically, it would have been so radically different compared to Walter Hill's version, which is stylized in a very comic book way that, yeah, it would have been great. But 
Eh, unfortunately, we were never able to get that. So, as per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And our first letter is from Adarsh, and it goes, Dear Justin and Will, I'm a regular listener to your podcast and admire your knowledge and effort in passing love for cinema around the globe. I am from India, and instead of asking for movie recommendations, I would like to give you guys a few movie recommendations from my homeland. On an earlier podcast, you guys mentioned a few Indian movies you saw and loved. You also mentioned that you would love to explore new great works of our country. India is a country where movies are made in more than 41 languages, and therefore a great many gems can be found amongst the ocean of Indian cinema. And then Adarsh provided a list of movies. And I gotta say, this was a great list. This is why I'm reading this letter. And like out of the main ones that he listed, I only knew one of them. Hey, can we put it in the show notes? Yep, it'll be in the show notes as well. Just click down there and you can find them all. He included, I believe, about a dozen of like art house style or just like dramatic films. And then four guilty pleasure comedy movies. One of them I had seen. So I'm like, whew, all right, I know a little bit about this. <laughs> but yeah, we talked about Indian cinema hundreds of episodes ago. And it's nice that, you know, someone from India finally sent us a list because as we've talked about before we have no kind of guiding principle on you know all the hundreds and thousands of indian movies out there i'd love to return to indian cinema again sometime i know shahrukh khan i'm going for like the real entry level people aren't i yeah but i think that's fine (laughs) because people listening to the podcast probably won't be that familiar with it so it's a way to get into it and he actually mentions the letter writer p.s i would very much appreciate if you could do an episode on the career of filmmakers michael haneke and Lars von Trier. Uh, yeah, we actually haven't uh, tackled those two yet. Lars von Trier, I think, has been often requested. And wasn't there a week when we were going to do it, but then we did something else and never got Yeah, I'm actually a big fan of Lars von Trier's films, even though that uh, recently you want to tiptoe around that because, yeah, Lars von Trier, man. Oh, yeah, he's problematic. That's right. I run hot and cold on both Haneke and Lars von Trier, but I, I do like them both sometimes. I think that uh, Lars von Trier is in there in that like Steven Soderbergh category that I I love how experimental he is with his stuff. And even when it doesn't work, I I appreciate the effort that he goes about things. Our next letter is from Robert McDonald. And he asks, in line with the low budget regional filmmaking a la Ray Dennis Steckler, I would love to hear you guys discuss the Arkansas great Charles B. Pierce. Are you familiar with Charles B. Pierce? The name rings a bell, but please give me a title. Uh, Legend of Boggy Creek. Oh, of course. Yes. Yes, I am familiar with Charles B. Pierce. The town that dreaded sundown? Yeah. yeah. And isn't it like Legend of Boggy Creek 2, like The Legend Returns or something like that? The MSD3K classic? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I'm not an expert in Charles B. Pierce. I like the idea of him. I'm into what he's doing. Yeah, he's one of those regional greats that like he made movies like in his hometown without Hollywood resources as a complete independent. And he was able to make big hits that way and i think that's something that really interests me and you so yeah we could definitely tackle um his work especially boggy creek which was a massive hit and is basically like the proto blair witch i mean the filmmakers of blair witch says they were inspired by boggy creek i love a filmmaker like that because they're working in parts of the country that you just never see in movies ever and you see people in them that you never see in movies ever so thanks uh, very much for that recommendation and what are we doing on the patreon this week will this week we are looking at a whole different part of the world yes we are going to japan to talk a little bit about anime Vroom, we're going to neo tokyo oh, we're talking about yeah like the most famous anime film ever made uh or close to it 
Akira. Will Sloan! <laughs> That's my uh, Tetsuo. Nice. Uh, Akira, it was voted by Important Cinema Club Super members to be our self-destructing Patreon topic this week. Me and Will dive into anime. We talk about generally about anime, something that we haven't really touched upon other than when we did the uh, Miyazaki episode. So check that out at patreon.com slash the Important Cinema Club. It will be disappearing at the end of the month. And if you are a Super member, you can also vote on what you want the next topic to be. And it's all video game movie super mario brothers john voigt's lara croft john claude van damme's street fighter or christopher lambert's mortal Kombat. vote on which one you want us to talk about and that's what we'll talk about patreon.com slash the important cinema club what are we doing next week justin so next week we're talking about a filmmaker that never gets talked about which is my favorite kind of stuff even though it's a little bit like is there enough to you know chew on when it comes to this topic is there a reason that he never gets talked about so we'll be tackling french filmmaker edmund t greville and i don't believe you've ever seen any of his movies right will nope never seen a single one don't think i had even heard of him until you mentioned him. so this is a fascinating filmmaker because he started making movies in 1931 and in his biography, which I read, which unfortunately only exists in French, he describes an Edgar G. Ulmer-like uh, set, working with almost no resources, having to do things very abstract and expressionist. He made films in English. He made films in French. He made films all over the world. And you know what a shocking fact about his filmography? One third of them are completely unavailable. <laughs> I'm sad to hear that. Yep. There are some that were released in France, but almost nothing released in North America. I don't think anything's been released in North America. Nobody ever talks about his films, but they are visually dense. They're like really clever and they move at a quick pace. He was a writer-director as well. So he is a straight-up auteur and he was a massive cinephile when it wasn't something that was, you know, that popular for filmmakers. So I'm going to recommend to Will three movies to watch. Silk News, which was one of his British pictures for One Night of Love, which is his kind of like Coen Brothers picture, and also Whirlpool from 1935, which was the film that almost got him brought to North America. Do you know who it came down to? It was him and Alfred Hitchcock. And David O. Selznick pitched Hitchcock instead of Greville. <laughs> so that's what we'll be doing next week. And until then, I'm Justin DeClue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Justin here, interrupting briefly to thank some of our new Patreon subscribers, who include David, Benjamin Noble, Michael Davies, Joseph Folk, Jacob Tiwiniak, Rose Gunn, Alex Kleiss, Kevin Sheet, Jan Nuxton, Peter McKay, Derek, Loby Pipes, Elliot Shugol, Louis Costa, Maximilian Strand, Connor Willingham, Surgery Head, Daniel Champion, RJ Foster, Avery Books, and Ryan High. Thank you very much for becoming patrons. We could not do it without you. And there's a new Gold Ninja Video Blu-ray out. If you go to goldninjavideo.com, you can pick up our release of Jackie Exploitation, a treasury of Jackie Chan, copycats, and imitators. Ten movies spread over three discs. Endless special features going through a subgenre where every martial arts filmmaker and star tried to rip off the success of Jackie Chan's Snake in the Eagle's Shadow and Drunken Master. These are all interesting films, most of them great, some of them not so good, but you gotta see them because Master with Crack Fingers is a picture where the producer took a 1970s Jackie Chan film, shot new footage, 
and had Jackie reappear in it by shooting a double just from the back of the head. Yep, that's right. Jackie has his own game of death. So that can be picked up at goldninjavideo.com. It is a limited edition, so get it now. And with that, we now return you to your regular scheduled programming. Will, I just saw that you watched the Wes Craven classic and the start of a whole new franchise, Shocker, from 1989. That's right. Move over, Freddy Krueger. There's a new bad boy in town, a new non-corporeal villain, and his name is Pinker. And he's very much like Freddy. Very hammy. And played by Mitch Pileggi, everyone's favorite actor from such pictures as Basic Instinct. And uh, I'm looking here at his filmography. You know his face. You've seen it before. He was on The X-Files. He had a big role on that. Yeah, Shocker is one of those Wes Craven movies that time forgot. Uh, it came out in 1989, distributed by Universal Pictures. And uh, yeah, I don't think it was a massive hit or anything, but I watched it. And yeah, every time I watch a Wes Craven movie, I feel a bit bad that I used to underrate him. Yeah, I remember when we uh, did our Wes Craven episode, you're like, oh, I don't know about this. Wasn't he a hack? He had one good movie. Yeah, well, I feel like even by the time we did the episode, like by the time that week was done, I was like, okay, I've got a new appreciation for Wes Craven. Like, yeah, I always kind of thought that he was like Scream and Nightmare on Elm Street and Last House on the Left, and he kind of lucked his way into all three. That used to be my take. Oh, so he just like stumbled into these movies, Sean Cunningham style, the producer of Last House on the Left. But I think that's clearly wrong, because frankly, when you look at his filmography, it's mostly pretty good. And I saw that you gave Shocker four stars, so you had a fun time? I thought it was super fun. I mean, like a lot of borderline Evil Dead shenanigans going on in it. Hey, Ted Raimi's even in it, just, you know, to tip the hat. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. But I mean, there's there's an even bigger star who's in the movie. The young lead is played by Mr. Peter Berg. Oh, Peter Berg. <laughs> Peter Berg, I think, has such a fascinating career because I always forget that, like, he acted a lot. Like, he starred in films. Like, he is the star of Shocker. Yeah, he's in, like, Heavyweights. He's in The Last Seduction. Uh, Aspen Extreme. He's Adam Sandler's best friend in Going Overboard. He's in a Spike Lee film, Girl Six. I mean, he still acts. He's still in some of the movies that he directs. Like, he was in Deepwater Horizon and Lone Survivor. Um, but yeah, more than anything, he's basically known as the director of the right wing rah rah patriotism movies yeah well i mean like kind of like coded as right wing they're they sort of present themselves as apolitical but (laughs) i mean (laughs) but they're they're kind of like meat-headed movies with mark Wahlberg. i I mean i saw mile 22 and uh i I had a pretty fun fun time really mile 22 is one of those movies i wasn't feeling too well i was sitting in the cinema after 20 minutes, I'm like, I'm good. And I went home. Well, I mean, everything that I said about Tony Scott's style applies doubly to the style of Mile 22. Oh, man, I'm going to have to watch Mile 22 now tonight. I, no, I don't recommend it for you. I don't think you'd Peter like Berg it. Peter <laughs> Berg is one of those directors that I love the rundown with The Rock and Sean William Scott. And he's one of those directors that after that picture, every time I would go see a new movie that he directed, I'd be like, oh, man, this sucks. <laughs> like, hoping against hope that maybe there'd be a little bit of that rundown magic. I mean, let me just list this, like, collection of stinkers that followed that movie. You remember The Kingdom with some, uh, where they go to the Middle East with Jamie Foxx, Jennifer Garner, and Chris Cooper? Oh, and Jason Bateman. Uh, did you see Spencer Confidential? Oh, yeah, terrible. Awful. I think that what I gave it a really low rating when I reviewed it. Oh, yeah. Two stars. I wrote, it's like a dumb guy, Jack Reacher, 
but the second boring Jack Reacher film. Did you ever see his uh, post Tarantino comedy very bad things? Listen, I've, I've seen them all, Will. I've, I've okay. been tricked every time. <laughs> uh, well, Very Bad Things came out before the rundown. I think that Very Bad Things may be the most mean spirited of all the Tarantino clones. Oh, man. Now you're selling me on it. Well, you've never seen it? No, I've never seen oh. it. Oh. Patreon episode? Listen to this cast Christian Slater, Cameron Diaz, John Favreau, Jeremy Piven, Daniel Stern. Daniel Stern. Oh, man. Well, I'm sold now. Uh, as one of the leads. Oh, fuck. As one of the main guys. Let's get some of that bushwhacked magic oh, in there. Oh, yeah. And I guess the only other movie that people liked that uh, Peter Berg made was Friday Night Lights. Well, uh, Hancock was a massive was hit. It? Oh, you're being sarcastic. That, no, seriously, it was like a like number four that year that it came out. No. Which shows you how big Will Smith was in his prime. I did not know that. I saw Hancock in theaters and I'm like, man, this is not good. It was taking the piss out of superhero movies before we had the Marvel Disney industrial complex. By the way, before we leave this topic forever, um, something Peter Berg. <laughs> no, Peter Berg episode. Something Peter Berg related. Uh, have you watched any of the Mark Wahlberg reality show that's out now? No, I haven't. I thought we were going to bring up the amazing interview where he yells at someone for not joining the army you've seen that clip right no wait peter berg does that it's where uh peter berg yells at an israeli reporter and calls him a draft dodger <laughs> during an interview session for battleship oh man yeah but oh so wait but you were bringing up that mark Wahlberg reality show does he make some guest appearances no he doesn't that's the thing um i mean i haven't watched it i just know he's not in it but i'm just so tickled by the existence of that reality show where it's just like the documentary from halfway through boogie nights but unironic about like how good a, a cool a guy Mark Wahlberg is how he's an actor but he's also a businessman oh god in the clip the most famous part is Peter Berg goes join the IDF motherfucker oh man oh, okay well god. I mean that makes me laugh uh, that's very funny I think the thing is I never really got into Peter Berg mile mile 22 notwithstanding because there's just something that seems very boring about most of his movies. Like I, Battleship looks like a real snooze. Deepwater Horizon looks oh, like... Oh, man, you need to get into Peter Berg because I feel like Battleship ends with real-life World War II veterans like playing actors, getting on the battleship and taking those aliens down. <laughs> and like it's all like slow motion. You see like the sinewy muscles of like 75-year-old men like reloading <laughs> Battleship turrets. Well, let's see. It's 131 minutes. That's... That sounds like a, a great use of time. And don't forget, uh, Battleship stars that guy that was like a Taylor Kitsch, oh, like the God. star for like two years before being thrown in the waste bin. Oh, poor guy. All right, Peter Berg episode coming up. <laughs> we should actually do it. I'm not even kidding anymore. <laughs>